TED Audio Collective. Morning. It is the last day of the token sale, and you just sent me a voice memo that I swear to God I almost recorded the exact same voice memo. Good morning. It's the last day of the civil token sale. I know they've been working their butts off over the weekend to get people to donate, to help people who have struggled to donate. But the number hasn't gone up that much. It's 1.42, I think. I didn't quite understand why any whales hadn't, like, incrementally bought tokens in the past, like, three or four days. But I guess they were trying to get normal people to buy in or something still. So if a whale comes in, it's going to be pretty obvious that it's a last-minute rescue operation or it's just thing. this whole thing's just going to go out with a whimper. We'll see. <laughs> what a day. Looking forward to seeing what happens. Big day? I don't know. I'm glad it's going to be over soon. See you later. Bye. This is ZigZag, our podcast about changing the course of capitalism, journalism, and women's lives. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and that was me and my co-founder, Jen Boyant. And if you're a new listener and you don't know what whales and token sales are, we will explain. It all has to do with Civil, a blockchain startup for journalism that we joined earlier this year and that we documented over season one. Over the last month, Civil has been selling its cryptocurrency, the Civil token. As you've just heard, it's been a very long month. The Civil founders wanted to sell a minimum of $8 million worth of tokens to jumpstart their new platform for trustworthy journalism. Well, the sale just wrapped up, and we'll tell you what happened. We also have more of our exclusive explainer of how misinformation spreads on Twitter from the Knight Foundation. Because all of this, all of it, it's really about trust and information and how we find both and what can we believe in these days. It's episode two of season two of ZigZag. Be right back. Okay, so we're going to get you the full update on Civil later in the show. But because I respect that some of you are dying to know what happened, and the number one rule of journalism is that you don't bury the lead, here is the headline. The token sale failed. It did not reach its $8 million goal. It pulled in a little over $1.4 million, and the majority of that was from Consensus, the company that funded the project from the very beginning. Not good. We've got the founder of Civil here to talk through where things went wrong and what happens next. We took best practices and we applied it to a whole new world, which is consumer tokens and people who have never bought crypto before. And it didn't work, like in a pretty spectacular way. But don't fast forward, because this first half of the show is pretty important, too. Okay, so we're exploring trust this season, trust and information. And I want you to think, like, 
What happens in that split second when you decide to believe something or someone? It could be a Facebook post or what your boss says happened in a meeting that you weren't invited to. Or even what your brain or your gut tells you when it says not to trust someone you've just met. There's no good reason why. You just don't trust them. That split second happens millions of times a day on Twitter. Speed is part of the charm, right? According to the company, 335 million people use the platform every month. And I am certainly one of those people. And it's weird. Like, sometimes I am really into Twitter. I feel like I'm learning a lot of stuff or I'm chatting with you, dear listeners, or watching live events as they happen. It's pretty cool. But other times, Twitter just makes me feel gross. I'll get obsessive about responding to stuff, retweeting, liking, just like Twitter wants me to. Time with my eyeballs is its business model, after all. But that business model can backfire, too, because sometimes all the outrage and impulsive, sometimes hateful, stupid stuff on there makes me log out. I checked my profile recently, and it says that I joined Twitter in August 2009. So nearly a decade that I've been doing this mental dance with Twitter. But last year, something changed for a lot of us. Because that's when we all realized that Twitter could do more than just mess with my head or your head. It could mess with all of our heads in a targeted way and en masse, to the point where it could mess with democracy. For example, Oxford researchers found that in the weeks running up to the 2016 presidential election, people in swing states saw more false information on Twitter than voters in other states. These small but very important number of swing voters were likely micro-targeted. And this summer, those same Oxford researchers told the Senate Intelligence Committee that the goal of those tweets was to put information out there that, pure and simple, would, quote, get groups of voters to confront each other angrily over social media and in the streets. Like trying to inflame political and religious differences by tweeting about an alleged group called the United Muslims of America and another group called the Army of Jesus, tweeting about both of them and at the same time, like maybe they could get American Muslims and Christians to get off Twitter and go at each other in real life. That was the hope anyway. It's lovely, right? If you want to know more about who was tweeting that stuff, you can listen to the previous episode. We go into the sources of that information. There were also, of course, tweets that promoted or discredited senators and presidential candidates and discouraged people from voting by telling them that their polling station had moved or they could just text their vote in. You still can't do that, by the way, at least not here in the United States. So do we know how many people saw the messages or how many voters were actually influenced by them? No, not conclusively. We would need the companies, those social media companies themselves, to share their data to really try to figure that out. When Twitter's CEO Jack Dorsey testified on Capitol Hill last month, he didn't get into specifics. We weren't expecting any of this when we created Twitter over 12 years ago. We acknowledge the real-world negative consequences of what happened, and we take the full responsibility to fix it. 
So until those social media companies open up their black boxes of algorithms and data, we rely on smart researchers to do the sleuthing for us. And so let's continue our deep dive into that new report from the Knight Foundation. It's called Disinformation, Fake News, and Influence Campaigns on Twitter. Again, this report is one of the largest analyses ever done on how false news spread on Twitter during and after the 2016 U.S. presidential election. And in the last episode, you heard how, by mapping millions of tweets, researchers Matt Hindman and Vlad Barish found that the links in those tweets could be traced back to just a few dozen websites. The not-so-good news? All the bots tweeting out the disinformation on those sites were still tweeting away. They're publishing 11 or 12 tweets a second. You know, over the course of this interview, they've published thousands and thousands of tweets. This is Matt Hindman. He's a George Washington associate professor. He has a new book called The Internet Trap. So now maybe you're wondering, okay, well, so what? What can we do? I mean, what can Twitter do? What can the government even do? There are a few things. Let's start with you and me. What we can do. Simply knowing that there's a couple dozen sites that are responsible for a huge chunk of this problem, I think in some ways makes it easier to solve. Just calling out your friends when they link to that set of sites would likely make a big difference. Personally, I'm advocating for a slow Twitter movement. No more reflexive retweeting allowed. It could be possible. All right, so maybe a movement like that is not in Twitter's interest. So what should the company realistically do? Here's the CEO, Jack Dorsey, again, and what he told lawmakers he had achieved so far. We're now removing over 200% more accounts for violating our policies. We're identifying and challenging 8 to 10 million suspicious accounts every week. And we're thwarting over half a million accounts from logging in to Twitter every single day. The other thing Twitter could do? Just don't let that relatively small list of websites that regularly publish false news use Twitter. Period. As we told you in the last episode, until now, the traditional thinking has been that disinformation on social media is just a game of whack-a-mole. Like, there's no point in banning certain websites because other disinformation will just pop up in its place. But Vlad Barish, that scientist at Graphica and the other author of The Night Report, thinks that what they found could change that thinking. One of the conclusions was if a particular fake news domain is taken down and denied a platform, that content takes a serious hit. That measure is effective. You may or may not think that banning news sites from Twitter is a good idea, depending on your interpretation of the First Amendment, at least here in the U.S. But taking down conspiracy news sites reduces the amount of disinformation people see. Just stating the obvious here. We also mentioned the Pizzagate hoax in the last episode. That story could mostly be traced back to the conspiracy website The Real Strategy, And the night researchers found that after Twitter and Reddit banned the real strategy from their platforms, links to that site pretty much disappeared. Okay, so where's the government in all of this? 
Lawmakers have heard a lot of testimony, and there are some ideas floating around Capitol Hill, like labeling bots or making companies ban sites that explicitly promote violence. But unlike in Europe, no American lawmaker wants sweeping action, because then they risk being accused of getting in the way of innovation. Honestly, I just think that going forward, those folks on Capitol Hill really need more techies who can help lawmakers anticipate how new technology affects society. Because right now, lawmakers are applying the old rules of human behavior to new tech that has us interacting on a vast, accelerated scale that we have never seen before. I think a lot of people on the policy side, they just don't really know how this works. There's actually a very good uh, TED talk that's been around for a while by Duncan Watts, who's an expert in my field, that points out that it doesn't really work with our understanding of common sense. Common sense, like the ways we behave as normal adults every single day in the real world. Here's a clip of that TED talk by sociologist Duncan Watts. I live in New York, and if someone is sort of stacked up against you in the subway on a a crowded train, it's unpleasant, but it's not a big deal. If the train is empty and somebody comes and stands right next to you, it's absolutely bizarre. There are so many rules that we follow without even knowing that we're following them, and we don't need to think about it because that's what common sense does. Even for Human common sense has developed over millions of years, and it's very good at dealing with the here and now, with like our immediate surroundings, with us or maybe a small number of people in our like pack, as it were. But Twitter is operating on the level of a global society and affecting millions of people. And the same common sense principles just don't apply at that scale. These are situations that involve thousands or millions or even hundreds of millions of people. And when we use common sense to reason about these kinds of situations, it can mislead us. Unfortunately, it's on the consumer to take things a little bit slower Mm. and just take those five extra seconds to look at a tweet. Mm -hmm. If the tweet has an article, maybe Google that article real quick or go to Snopes.com. A lot of the big misinformation stories, thank goodness, they're debunking stories for them on Snopes.com and other fact-checking sites, and expose yourself to slightly different viewpoints. Not too far out, but a little bit different from what you're exposed to, and see how they're approaching an issue. Uh, Because a lot of these stories, a lot of digital misinformation and propaganda they're not, like, born out of nowhere. They take existing issues of the day, sometimes existing specific stories, and they just come up with their own spin on it. Slightly stretching yourself is, I think, extremely, extremely important. It's, uh, this is going to be a weird analogy, but uh, I do yoga, and my yoga practice, my yoga teachers, uh, all about, you know, you want to stretch yourself, but not too far. Because if... You stretch yourself too far, obviously you get injured. Um, But if you never stretch yourself at all, you just sort of like become more and more encrusted and then you like can't move at all. So it's same kind of gentle information stretching, I think is very useful for our minds as, you know, exercise is useful for our bodies. It's hard to be a person in the world, isn't it, these days? It is, yeah, absolutely. It turns out there's no free lunch. No free lunch, friends. And maybe you're thinking, well, 
then I'll just stop eating, so to speak. Who needs news? Skip it. Sam Gill, the vice president for communities and impact at the Knight Foundation, really worries that we will give up on getting informed. What I'm worried about is that people just start writing off all kinds of information because they're just inundated uh, with information that's hard to verify. And if we're already in a situation where trust in media is going down because people think it has a side, then I think we're highly vulnerable to people just saying, you know, to hell with all of it. And that, I think, that kind of tuning out is what we should be worried about. Was Sam describing you? Probably not, because you're listening to this podcast. But confession, I know he was describing me some days. But civil rights are not a given, so we got a man and woman up. When it comes to information in an informed society, we're not users. We're we're citizens and residents of communities in the country, and we need accurate, relevant information to collectively make good decisions about where we want our society to go. Otherwise, as we've seen, society has the potential to go off the rails. And that is the reality. By the way, Twitter is working with a group of academic researchers to measure something that they're calling conversational health. They're studying how groups form based on political views and if getting exposed to more diverse views can decrease prejudice and discrimination. Sounds pretty worthy and very cool. Twitter also recently announced a plan to prohibit what they call dehumanizing language on the platform. We will keep watching both of those interesting developments, and we will link to them on our website and in our newsletter. That is zigzagpod.com. We will also, of course, link to that night report. It is worth looking at in full, reading the whole thing. Uh, There are also beautiful maps. Who knew tweets could be made into such gorgeous maps? Uh, Again, zigzagpod.com. Okay, after the break, the latest on civil, blockchain, journalism, and a token sale countdown. Strange times we live in, folks. I'll be right back with Jen and Civil CEO. Okay. So here is that update on civil. Despite lots of optimism and a fair bit of public support, the civil team failed to reach its $8 million goal. Sure, people were into the idea of creating a new kind of platform for journalism, a way to free news publishers from having to chase advertising dollars that were mostly going to Google and Facebook anyway, and a way to make sure, in theory, The information readers got was trustworthy and solid. Who wouldn't want that in this day and age? But as the founders learned, it's easy to support an idea until it requires putting down real money. Civil got a lot of press, but in the end, it failed to convince enough people that blockchain and crypto economics were the answer to journalism's problems. Here was the situation at civil headquarters at the stroke of midnight when the token sale shut down. 
I went to visit. Hi, team. How are y'all feeling? If you bought tokens, they are being refunded. And Civil says it's not dead yet. Meanwhile, Consensus, the blockchain company that first put money into Civil, has committed another $3.5 million to the nonprofit arm of the project. This money will be used to make more grants to journalists. The day after the token sale ended, Jen and I sat down with Matthew Isles, the guy who came up with the idea for the whole thing. It had been a rough 24 hours. Uh, I think the last 24 hours have been much like the last four weeks, um, which has been sleepless. A mix of excitement and enthusiasm and progress and learning and disappointment and frustration. But um, I think specifically to last night, I think it was actually quite relieving. Um, Really? The team and the project and the community has been so focused on a number and a date. And more specific, that's not even accurate. We've been focused on people, and we've been focused on getting people through the steps necessary to support us, those who wanted to support us, and there were many. But I think it feels like a tough chapter, but one that we've closed. Today I woke up surprisingly refreshed, actually, and with uh, with a new outlook. We, I think, have thrown a bit of a monkey off our back and are now able to regroup and push forward. So today I'm feeling uh, quite confident, more confident, in fact, than I ever have in the project, that we are going to learn from what we've uh, experienced over the last few weeks and and prior to that to make sure that we keep pressing forward with our mission so nothing's going to stop us from, from accomplishing that. So we have a publishing tool, and much of the like much of the product is complete, but to do sort of civil's version of all of this, it hangs on the notion of the Constitution, a community-operated governance mechanism, and for that, we need to get tokens out into the world. Okay, and we, and we, so and we part, miscalculated how to do that. Right, and so, okay, so that part in the perception of the public has failed, essentially, that you didn't hit the $8 million. $8 million would have been sort of the the tipping point where you felt that you could get that part of the civil experiment going, the, the sort of voting mechanism, the governance and all the rest of it, right? Yeah. I mean, in retrospect, we made bad decisions. Um, we don't need $8 million in order to keep the project going. I think Vivian Schiller and the Civil Foundation would be able to do a hell of a lot of good for the world with $8 million or more. And so it was a goal that we set. Traditionally, the way the token sales are meant to work is to ensure that uh, you not only distribute tokens to as many mission-aligned people as possible, but then there's a fair market value uh, determined. So we said we were going to sell 34 million tokens. If we had not set a soft cap, for example, um, and one person showed up with $100— then we ran the risk of distributing 34 million tokens to one person for $100. So that's, you know, it's difficult to explain those things. Um, It looks like civil needs $8 million or else. Um, But in fact, we needed to make sure that there was going to be a large enough community uh, here for us to distribute 34 million tokens into the world. So we made, we made, we took, frankly, we took a playbook which admittedly is from a space that is too nascent to have best practices, but that's essentially what we did is we took best practices and we applied it to a whole new world, which is consumer tokens and people who have never bought crypto before. And it didn't work, like in a pretty spectacular way. And 
and that's okay. But we also had 3,000 people basically show up and want us to give us their, you know, the, the fact that so many people went through 44 steps, the famous 44 steps, to give us $10, I think is sometimes like one of the most heartening things that keeps me motivated. Can you clarify? I think some people are going to be confused by you saying that you didn't need the $8 million. Can you clarify why you didn't need that money, why it wasn't about the money, as you said? Well, I mean, certainly, so to be clear, there's there's need and there's want. Um, there are plenty of projects, newsrooms that have approached us, uh, prospective newsrooms that have approached us, especially as people came to understand that we were giving grants out to some of our first fleet newsrooms that asked whether there was more cash or grants going around. And if we had it, we would have said yes. And not just because we're bleeding heart, you know, for, for journalism, but because they were important projects like yours. We felt like if we could do uh, at least $8 million, we could be an instant, instantly the Civil Foundation would be one of the most impactful foundations for journalism around the world. Um, so it was an ambitious goal, uh, but it was a want. Need is a different matter. So need is paying for uh, the rest of our staff is, and of course, continuing the grants that we've committed to. And on that score, we are fine. We have a uh, commitment from Consensus, who's our, our sole investor. and and the That's the civil media portion. So separate from the nonprofit foundation part. Yep. Um, so the foundation and what this whole process was also supposed to sort of do was um, accelerate the spinning out, if you will, of the foundation. Um, so it's already its own organization, but it's not yet. Uh, the 501c3 is still pending. That's a process that takes some time. So had this sale been successful, it would have been faster uh, to that outcome. So we're disappointed by that because um, it means that our impact on the world is going to just take a little bit longer. Um, but fundamentally, the ability for us to continue the project, the ability for us to continue to bring our community with us has simply been delayed. It's not been put at risk. So I think what you're saying, though, is that the civil media part, that really doesn't hinge on the token at all. You guys are continuing to build the tech that is part of that. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, the only thing that hinges on anything is we took a black eye with a failed token sale. We need to come back out into the market and demonstrate that this is actually something that people can use and this is actually something that can work. So we still have that to prove. But in terms of like financially being viable, yeah, we're fine. Can you tell us about like who are the backers of civil media, where that money is coming from? Uh, yes. Consensus is our sole investor and our sole, sole backer. investor. Correct. Okay. And they are continuing to commit to civil media. Yep. So Consensus and Civil went into this token sale linked arm to arm. Um, and knowing full well the risks that we were taking um, going into it, we worked on the token sale structure, $8 million, $24 million together. We're strong partners. And we recognize that we're trying to do something both profound and profoundly new. This is a 10-year, 20-year vision um, amongst the both of us. Um, and we're still at the beginning. Can you share with us what happens now? Um, not specifically, which is to say we are going to sell tokens. <laughs> we are going to continue. We still believe in tokens. Uh, we still believe in our token design. Um, we are just going to figure out a different way to administer them to the public. We, I can promise you we are not going to do anything 
that looks like the last token sale. So we're not going to do four weeks or else. We're not going to do if we don't hit this or else. Um, it's going to be something that um, in the space is often referred to as a continuous model, a continuous selling model, uh, which looks a lot more like a sort of traditional retail experience where we're going to make a product available to sell and it'll sell until we run out. Um, so we have 34 million tokens that we've committed to the general public. Uh, that hasn't changed. We'll just sell them on a much more continuous fashion uh, with no deadlines or, or uh, sort of soft caps necessary. Jen, can I bring you in here? Jen's been sitting next to me um, quietly, and I think she's doing some writing down her thoughts, actually. <laughs> um, can, can you jump in? Like, what do you think of—I don't completely understand, actually, well, well, the next— you, Well, you, I don't think that you—one, you, you can't oh, understand okay. it yet because I'm not providing enough information to understand it. The details of what the specific plans are are forthcoming. What I really, really want you and your listeners to take away is— Civil has been, I think, pretty, I, you know, I would like to give us high marks for being clear about our mission. We have not been clear whatsoever on how to execute some of the aspects of our product vision. So I'd prefer the opportunity to, to, uh, to do that. On this next step, we intend to be quite clear on what this model is going to look like before I try to respond to sort of I don't get it except because – I'm trying to give you guys a bit of a heads up of where we're going, which is it's not going to look like the last thing we did. Mm -hmm. There's a different way that we're going to go. I promise you and your listeners in the world that we are going to take great care in how we explain it. And um, and we learn, we've learned that we need to be far better at how we explain how we move forward, and we will. I'm just not prepared to do that right now. So will you, just to be clear, will you aim for this to be a consumer-based token still? Oh, of course. What do you think needs to happen in order for consumers to understand in the future how to participate in this system? And can you describe, you described something like a a, a shop model, is that what you said? Yeah, but again, so there's, there's a couple different points in your question. So one, we need to do a better job of communicating the value proposition around a token before you even come to a, a, a web experience to do anything, right? We need to do a better job of explaining why someone would want to give their money to this. So that's number one. We're going to do a better job of that. Mm -hmm. Number two, we need to make the actual user experience that people go through far better. Yes. And, and, what, and a huge thing that I also can promise is you're just going to come to one website, like we're you're not we're not going to pass you off to all these different right. projects, all these different different brands you've never heard of before, all these different things. We're going to make it an end to end experience. It's much cleaner, much simpler. Can I actually follow up on that? I mean, can you all just note what seems to be pretty clear mistakes in the process of both explaining but also creating a user experience for consumers to buy this? Um, <clears throat> you know, it's a challenging thing that we're doing, right? Because cryptocurrencies are operating in this gray regulatory space. Mm -hmm. And I was initially drawn to this technology because of its capacity to energize a decentralized community to capture value among the participants as opposed to having it go to some corporate entity like Facebook or Google. That's what I was drawn to about cryptocurrency, not its speculative behavior, not its, but that you could actually, one of my favorite quotes about it is to inject a business model into open source. Mm -hmm. So that's what we were drawn to. Now, 
the way that the space has matured is that a lot of the initial sort of froth and, and everything that was going on was highly speculative and required the SEC to um, make, at the, at the moment, still limited judgments on what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And so we're navigating a gray space and trying to do everything that we can to be as responsible as we can. So we need to KYC people. Okay, so what does that mean? Know your customer. Know your customer, anti-money laundering. So we need to make sure that, literally, that terrorists aren't spending money into a token sale so that they can wash their money and essentially distribute it somewhere else without banks being able to trace it. Okay, so what does that mean? You have to upload your passport and you have to prove your identity, and uh, and that's scary to the average person who is completely aware of data hacking and things like that. But it's something we have to do. Um, this quiz, this famous. I wish we told people more. Like this, this, this was a legal requirement. Like I wish, I wish. Well, I think we did, we but did. I wish that it had been like more clear. Like, yes, this sucks. We see you, customer. It sucks, but here's why we're doing it. So that will be. We're very excited. Just on the way over here, we were talking about what we're currently calling civil learn, which is which is going to be our way of onboarding people. So rather than then, I'm getting to your point. Rather than a quiz, what we need to do instead is say, hey, you're going to, in order to participate in this new frontier for journalism, we need you to be in possession of a part of its economy and a part of its voting power. And to do that, you're going to need some tools along the way. But I also want to note that this is all related to a sense of trust, Mm -hmm. you know, blockchain and our listeners and your cons- the consumers you were trying to attract. I mean, there were all sorts of questions just a week ago about whether whales were going to come in and save this token sale, and that conversation was happening in public. So I just want to note the roller coaster, the emotional roller coaster yep. that everyone has been through, whether yep. it's newsroom officers or you guys or the our listeners, listeners. <laughs> or the consumers. Totally. And I think that's that's part of this question of, of trust and transparency and then how you move on from a pretty big failure, but move on. Most startups screw up their first something. Um, Very few do it on a stage as big as this. I think that one of the hallmarks of civil, I would hope people agree, is our the public nature with which we've chosen to conduct ourselves. Um, And that includes sharing the warts and all with people. And so it's painful when we fail. Um, And people can draw conclusions about whether it's not going to work or whether we can be trusted. And the trust... I think is obviously something you can lose rapidly, but I think ultimately trust is built on um, consistent behavior. I think our consistent behavior has been that of being earnest and thorough about what we believe to be about to happen, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, about what we believe to be the best course for us and our community. And we're going to get some of those things right, and we're going to get some of those things wrong. I think that we've also been um, quite clear about the risks involved and about the about the um, the unknowns involved. So I can certainly promise you this won't be the last time that a tactical mistake happens. Um, some, I mean, it's bound to. Um, with with what we're doing here, we we are going to have to. Um, bump into walls to figure out the right way forward. And, uh, you know, all we can do is continue to try to demonstrate um, transparency and um, compassion, frankly, for our users and for our community. Um, and, and, if, and if we lose people along the way, that will be hurtful and, and painful but understandable. 
But all we're going to have to do is just continue to come out day in and day out um, making this thing better. Um, so I don't expect to win back hearts and minds overnight. Um, but all we can do is really just keep our you know nose to the grindstone. In addition to what's been happening with you guys and building civil and all the rest of it, there's what's been happening with crypto generally. The number of Bitcoin transactions happening every single day have dropped precipitously um, in the last year. There's also been $1.5 billion worth of cryptocurrency stolen in the past two years, according to McAfee. Um, There seems to be, some would say, a correction happening. Others would say that the reckoning has come for crypto and that it was bullshit to begin with. I think that's silly. There was also a dot-com crash, and people said the internet wasn't going to be a big deal. I think um, I think calling anything a reckoning is a really great way for skeptics to feel good about themselves for a short amount of time. It's not really constructive to anything, as far as I'm concerned. None of that matters to us. Um, the civil token has every, and the civil project has every means by which to be successful, regardless of whether or not people are transacting with Bitcoin. The only macro number that would really start to worry me is if less developers are moving into the into the space. I think I want to follow on everything you guys just said, including the stats that you just noted, and just ask why you guys don't think any whales or maybe one whale bought in this token sale and what that means for the space and what it does it reflect on mm. the dip in this market? Yeah, I know does why. It, so there were really like two um, I'll call them big buyers that we were trying to target. So, um, big buyers from who are who are more let's call them sort of philanthropists, journalism foundation types, um, um, civic minded folks um, who who have never necessarily thought who who would give to the civil foundation in an instant if it didn't necessarily mean crypto. all this stuff. <laughs> um, and then the other are sort of crypto investors or crypto buyers who are looking to back projects that have an opportunity to be successful over the long term. And we went into the sale believing that we had commitments from both. On the journalism side of things, what started to happen was the regulatory uncertainty and the just the newness of all of this was too much. Um, can I just give my money to Vivian Schiller <laughs> was, was a question that we got. <laughs> well, yes, we'd love you to, uh, but we still need to get to this $8 million mark that we've said. And we would, by the way, you person who loves to give a lot of money to journalism, we would like you to have voting power in this system because you're actually the kind of person that we want. Um, but we got uh, in time, we started to get more and more cold feet around like, well, Let's just see how this goes. Let's. I'd like to see it out in the wild before I make a, this significant of a commitment. Then the sort of crypto buyers, um, boy, did we launch into one of the most challenging markets, uh, right? So these folks are ones who are going to convert their Ether or maybe Bitcoin into uh, civil tokens. And most people who have a lot of money in this space are, are either underwater or are at much lower uh values than they were earlier this year. Um, So they had to make the calculation looking at our project as much as they might want to support it as, well, the way that the framework is here is that um, because there's this in-network transferability thing for a year, um, the likelihood of of a traditional ICO pop has been designed out of it deliberately. Um, As we've been saying, we, we deliberately tried to keep speculators out. 
But nevertheless, people who are used to putting in big sums of money into projects are not necessarily purely speculating, but they are wondering what's going to happen to my money. And that's when we were really grappling with whether or not we actually wanted these things. We were worried it was going to even undermine or, or make small the the role that all the consumers that we now had gained would actually play um, as there would be. So you didn't want their money then? At the end of the day, it became a very challenging thing. We didn't want to fail. Um, and we certainly would love money. And I mean, like I, if I'm channeling Vivian's show, take the money. But I think it would have had some very serious trade-offs that, that are, as, as the only path to success materialized that we were going to have to have a small number of people who we wouldn't otherwise necessarily count as sort of mission aligned. They, they are mission aligned to the notion of decentralization Wait. and disrupting the status quo. But I think that the the it became it, by the way I did, we didn't turn anything away but yeah I'm uh, wondering are no, you secretly no, relieved no, no. well I'm we uh, not by that specific point but I did mention I was relieved this morning I mean I think that that the structure of the sale was wrong period so it was it was bad for consumers it was bad for people for journalism foundation types it was bad for it was bad it was it was the perfect storm of working perfectly which was it was a consumer token that consumers couldn't figure out how to buy and it was a consumer token that made big money uh uh kept kept them out and so um we des- we des- we started from a legal framework and designed backwards and that was that was uh i think necessary but uh, that's crucial what you just said yeah so um, it was necessary, but it resulted in, in in working too well. But again, it wouldn't even be a good proof of concept of TCRs if you did it that way, mm. um, even if it may have saved face because we hit $8 million. So by the way, just to be super explicit, if there was enough money, if there was money that wanted to come into this, we were taking it. Um, we did not turn anybody away, um, but it was design, it was a flawed design. Next week, more about the lows and highs of entrepreneurship. You know, this word subscribe is very confusing to people. You can subscribe to our newsletter, which is free, and you can do that at the bottom of our homepage at zigzagpod.com. That is also where you can find the night report that we've been talking about. But also, if you're new to podcasting, subscribe to the podcast in the app that you're listening on, because that way the episode magically appears every Thursday. If you prefer to listen on our website, totally fine. Again, zigzagpod.com. What do you think about our second season so far? We would really love to know. Please tell us your thoughts, your worries, or give us your encouragement. We love that too. Send an email or a voice memo to zigzag at stableg.com. This episode was made possible with support from the Knight Foundation. It was produced by me and Jen Poyant. David Herman is our audio engineer and composer. Many thanks to our other audio engineer, Dan DeZula. And we want to welcome someone to our team. Thalia Beatty is going to be a producer with us starting in November. We are so happy she's going to be here. Her background is perfect. Um, We will fill you in on why she's the right person for Staple G. More about that next week, about growing the team uh, and our joys and concerns around that too. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions in partnership with Civil. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. 
I'm Anoush Zamarodi. Thank you so much for listening. It is a quarter to midnight, and I am leaving my comfy house and my sleeping family to walk the block or so to civil headquarters. Jesus. Oh, my umbrella just went inside out. It's embarrassing. Even there's only one person in the car watching me. Okay.